Please be seated. Our uh, scripture reading for this morning is Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. So uh, please turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, we'll begin reading in verse 6. But before I read that, uh, let's pray together one more time. Our Father, we know that all we have is Christ and that Jesus is, is our life, is our happiness, is our joy, is our hope, is our everything. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to see that more and more, uh, help us to see the riches of Jesus and help us, Father, to be able to see everything in this world in its proper place under his feet. So, Father, even now, uh, open our hearts and minds to your word, that we would see the glories of Christ in the scriptures, and that we would be moved to rejoice in them. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Hebrews chapter 8, uh, beginning with verse 6. But as it is... Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is erected on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, but they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no mercy for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Well, one of the continual uh, burdens of, of life and religion, it, it's really the same, it's this idea that I need to make it happen. That if my life is going to work out, I've got to work it out. If my problems are going to be solved, I've got to solve them. If, if I'm not going to be buried underneath my troubles, I've got to dig my way out. If I'm not going to be stuck down in the pit, I've got to get climbing. And uh, to be honest, this is my continual temptation, right? I probably freak out at least once a day because I, I give in to this, right? That, that my life is all on my shoulders, that I've got to handle this in my resources, with my abilities, with my know-how, which means since I often can't do that, then I begin to feel that life is going to crash down upon my head. 
The problem with most religions, of course, is that they tell you this is true, maybe not outright, but at least implicitly. Right? If you want to get right with God, you, you've got to obey his rules. If you want his blessing, you've got to make him happy. Whether that is the traditional religion following a traditional moral code, participating in traditional ritual activities, or in more uh, liberal religious traditions where it means following a liberal moral code and seeking to keep some revised but often no less strict standard of justice. If you want to re reject uh, religion altogether, guess what, right? I mean, you, you still end up on your own. Your destiny is in your hands. Your future, and in, in some ways of putting it, the future of the world is on your shoulders. Now, regardless of the tradition or non-tradition, uh, the burden of blessing ends up on us, and it is a burden that we cannot bear. What we're going to see this morning is God is the one who has taken the good of his world upon his shoulders, supremely in the cross. God will save his people. God himself will do it. God will complete his work. We're going to see that as we look at what the Bible calls the new covenant. A, a covenant is a, a legally binding and yet intimate relationship. And the, the new covenant is a relationship that God established with his people. And we, uh, enter, we're going to enter into understanding this new covenant by way of three questions about it. Uh, concerning this new covenant, this, this binding intimate relationship with God, we're going to ask, who is it for? Why is it better, that is better than the old covenant, and what does it promise? Who is it for, why is it better, and what does it promise? So first, who is it for? I identity is a big deal, and, and this is true subjectively and objectively, right? Who you conceive yourself to be shapes how you think, how you speak, how you act, who you are uh, shapes, among other things, what you are entitled to. Think about it. Uh, if my father is a billionaire and he dies, assuming he didn't cut me out of his will, I am entitled to part of his fortune because of who I am. Uh, I may not be any more deserving than anybody else, but he was my dad after all. I'm not saying that this is right or wrong. It's, it's just reality. And this is, this is no less true when it comes to the gospel. I want you to notice in our text this morning who this new covenant is for. Jeremiah, quoted by the book of Hebrews, is very specific. In verse 8, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And then Jeremiah repeats it again in verse 10. He says, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. God, uh, in the Old Testament, the book of Jeremiah is in the Old Testament, the, the first two-thirds of our Bibles, uh, during the Old Covenant, a covenant with the children of Abraham, promises a new covenant with those same children. The new covenant is with the house of Israel, according to Jeremiah. The promises of the new covenant are to the house of Israel. Now, what that means is, on a, on a very basic level, is that if you are not of the house of Israel— if you are not of the children of Abraham, then these promises are not for you. Just bear with me. Uh, we need to notice this, right? Because neither Jeremiah nor Hebrews says the new covenant is made with some other people called the church. The language of church is not here. 
there, there's a simple reason for this, and that is that the strict and kind of absolute division between the people of Israel and the church is an artificial division and not a biblical one. Ephesians chapter 2 says that in Christ, the Gentiles who were once alienated from Israel have been brought near. In Christ, the two, Jew and Gentile, have been made one. And Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 3 that this is the mystery of Christ, long hidden and now revealed, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Members of the same body. The Jews were always heirs, being the children of Abraham. The Gentiles, though, have been brought in. How does that happen? Well, Paul tells us uh, in Galatians 3, in Galatians 3.7, he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Genesis 3.29, he says, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. See, Jew and Gentile both can be children of Abraham, both can be members of God's people Israel through faith in Christ. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, Paul says. That is why Peter can use language applied to Israel in the Old Testament and apply it directly to the church in the New Testament. 1 Peter 2.9, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people uh, for his own possession. That language is uniquely applied to Israel at Mount Sinai. In fact, it's in contrast to all the other nations that Israel alone was called God's treasured possession. Well, God had not abandoned Israel in the New Testament and replaced her with the church. Rather, God has expanded Israel to include Gentiles by faith. So all who look to the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, are a member of the Jewish people, Israel. Which is why Paul can say in Galatians 6, for neither circumcision nor accounts uh, for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation that is in Christ. And as for all who walk by this rule, he says, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. You see, the Israel of God is the people of God, Jew and Gentile together in Christ. This is the only reason that we can read these promises in Jeremiah about a new covenant, promises specifically given to Israel, and believe that they are for us. If there were no way for us to be in Israel, then we, Gentiles, most of us, are simply outsiders looking in. But we can be in Israel because we are in Christ, Israel's Messiah. And so it is important important to know your identity, right? All of the promises of God are for his people Israel. They are for the church, which just means assembly, whether that is the church that met out Sinai or the church as it gathers around the throne of grace this morning. The promises of God are for the gathered people of God. God will save his people Israel. Are you among God's people, Israel? Are you a part of his church? Have you trusted in Jesus, the Messiah? So who is this new covenant for? It is, as Jeremiah says, for the house of Israel. Praise God that through Christ, we can become members of that house by faith. That brings us to the second question. Why is this new covenant better? You know, relating to our past can be a very challenging thing. 
Uh, you have some who insist that the old is better and you have others for whom the new is always new and improved. Some want to escape their past, others want to relive it. Some are haunted by it and others hunger for the good old days. And of course, the truth is often more complicated than any of us want to admit. Well, this morning we come to a passage in the New Testament quoting a passage in the Old Testament about the coming of a new covenant which comes in place of the old. Now, the writer of Hebrews, or for that matter, Jeremiah, whom he quotes, is not down on the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was good, and in Paul's words, it had glory. No one here disputes the glory of the Old Covenant. But again, in Paul's words, that does not mean that the New Covenant does not have even more glory. And you see the more glory in our text this morning in verse 6. In the New Covenant, you have a more excellent ministry the ministry of Jesus, as part of a better covenant because of its better promises. Of course, the obvious question is, what makes these promises better? What makes the new covenant better? Well, here's the answer in, a, in one sentence, right? Uh, the, 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 what makes the new covenant better is that the guarantee of growth and glory and grace for God's people. The guarantee of growth, glory, and grace for God's people. Now, we've already talked about God's people, and we're going to look at growth, glory, and grace in our last question. And so now we'll, we'll, we'll look at God's guarantee. God's guarantee of growth, glory, and grace for his people. Uh, it, it's hard for us to talk about the new uh, often without disparaging the old, right? If something is new and improved, what came before must be old and inferior, and to be honest, our writer does say there was a fault in the Old Covenant. First, he says that in verse 7. Verse 7, he says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And this is an argument that he's already used in the book of Hebrews. The first time he used it uh, about the priesthood. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11, he says, basically, if the Levitical priesthood could fulfill its purpose, why would God have promised another priest of a different order to come later? And the same argument uh, is said here, right? If the first covenant had been flawless, why would God have promised a second covenant to take its place? But God did promise a second covenant in Jeremiah 31, which argues that there was a flaw in the first. And yet, oddly enough, when, when he gets to verse 8, it's not the covenant that is flawed, but the people. God finds fault with them. You see, what is flawed about the covenant was not the covenant per se, but the people and their inability to keep the covenant. Hebrews 8, 9 simply says, they, they did not continue in my covenant. And the result was God's Judgment, as verse 9 goes on to say, they did not continue in my covenant, and show, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. As you read through the Old Testament, as Israel rejects God's covenant, God gives them over to the military might of their enemies. Of course, the climax of that is uh, in the judgment that takes place in the exile. If you want to see what is wrong with the Old Covenant, just look at the exile and the destruction of Jerusalem. It was a time when God's wrath was poured out on his people. 
And any covenant that is intended for blessing that ends in wrath instead of blessing uh, seems flawed. But again, it's not the covenant's fault, uh, Hebrews says, but the people who refused to keep it. And notice the way that the, the old covenant promises put it. Uh, in Exodus 19, uh, God says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. Leviticus 18 says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Deuteronomy 27 says, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. You can see the, the problem here, right? It's the, the if-then clause, right? If you obey my voice, you will be my treasured possession. If you keep my statutes, you shall live. If you do these words, you will not be cursed. Now, it's true that that was not absolute under the old covenant. God, God never fully abandoned his people. The Mosaic law, which had these if-then statements, was built on the Abrahamic covenant of promise, but it was there nonetheless, written in the covenant, if then. And while God was merciful, the covenant uh, was not so merciful, so to speak, as we see its final fruit in the exile and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. So what is, what is different about the new covenant then? Why is it better? Uh, what is better about these promises uh, it's not, as some people think, that the promises under, under the Old Covenant were merely physical, but in the New Covenant, they are wholly spiritual. In fact, it's, it's not the subject matter of the promises at all. At the heart of the covenant, both old and new, is the promise, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Every other promise flows out from that. Every other promise is just a further unfolding and elaboration of what that means. No, the promises are essentially the same from the Old Covenant into the New. And so how can the New Covenant promises then be better if they're essentially the same? And the answer is because the New Covenant promises are guaranteed. God is saying in Jeremiah, uh, my people broke the Old Covenant, but I'm going to make a New Covenant, which I myself will guarantee. We see that in the language of our text. Three times God says he will make or has made a covenant. And every time he uses a different word. In verse 9, speaking of the old covenant, God uses the common word for, for made. In verse 10, speaking of the new covenant, God uses the common word for making a covenant. But in verse 8, verse 8 is the interesting one because here, though he's quoting the, the Septuagint, uh, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, our writer chooses a different word. He intentionally translates the Old Testament Hebrew differently to highlight his point. He says, I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. And that word establish can mean things like accomplish or fulfill or complete. And God is saying, my people broke that old covenant, but I'm going to make a new covenant with my people whom I love because of my promises to Abraham. I'm going to make a new covenant with them and I myself will ensure that it comes to fruition, that it is completed, that it is fulfilled, that it works. I will see it through to the end. And we see this determination of God throughout the passage when he says, I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. 
I will be merciful to them. I will remember their sins no more. God is saying, I am going to make this happen. I will see it through to the end. God is guaranteeing that the promises will come about. And we saw that back in Hebrews 7.22, at least mentioned or hinted at, right, where, where uh, the writer of Hebrews says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus comes to guarantee the promises of the new covenant, which is to say, what, what is new about the new covenant? Uh, what is better about the better promises? That Christ has come the guarantor of a new covenant, our, our surety, as some translations put it, that the, the one who guarantees or ensures the promises. He can guarantee them because he took upon himself our sins, Israel's failure to keep the old covenant, as well as Adam's failure to keep the original covenant, so that he might show us his grace. See, God has taken on himself the, the burden of making things right, that, and that began when Jesus took on himself the curse of the old covenant so that we might receive the blessings of the new. God guarantees his new covenant will issue forth, not in final exile, but in exaltation through the work of Jesus. Jesus having come is what is better about the new covenant. He was promised in the old, foreshadowed in the old, foreseen in the old, but now he has come. And his work guarantees the blessing of the Father for us. And so as we face hard things in life, we need to know our identity as members of God's people by faith, even as we rest in Christ, the one who guarantees the promise to all God's people. And so who is the new covenant for? It's for all of God's people. God will save his people, Israel as we look to him by faith. Why is it better? Because of God's guarantee. God himself will do it. He has sent Jesus to accomplish his work of blessing his people. Well, third then, what does this new covenant promise? Now, as we look out at the misery of this world, we could, we could write a whole list of things that make this world hard. Uh, we could, we, uh, all we have to do is look to the news, and we could write a list of challenges and trials and troubles that we face every day. But the, 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 at least three things that would be on that list, or should be on that list, are these. Number one, our broken relationship to the Father. Number two, the burden of sin's guilt. And number three, our slavery to sin's power. See, we, we were created for a relationship with God the Father, but instead he feels distant and cold because of our sin. We were created to be approved of by the Father, knowing his fatherly favor and commendation, but instead we are weighed down by guilt and shame and condemnation. We were created to be free, to free to love, free to do good, free to serve, but instead we find ourselves doing what we don't want to do, continually going back to the same self-destructive and selfish behaviors. As Proverbs would say, as a dog returns to its vomit. The promises of the new covenant address each one of these miseries. The first promise is the promise of growth. You see this in verse 10. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they will be my people. In the Old Testament, God wrote his law on tablets of stone, but in the New Testament, God promises to write his law on our hearts. Now, in a sense, all people know the law, right? People have a conscience. They know right from wrong. They know what is good. So when God says he will write the law on our hearts, he does not mean he will simply inform us of what the law requires. He means that he will transform us into what the law pictures. No, this is, this is by God's power, not ours. He says, I will. You know, early in the book of Deuteronomy, God says to Israel, circumcise the foreskin of your hearts and be no longer stubborn. And the point is clear, right? Israel needed a transformed heart. But could they really do this? No, not at all, right? And so, so later in Deuteronomy, after Moses prophesies uh, the exile, after he tells Israel, yeah, they're going to come into the land, but they're going to rebel, they're going to turn away from God, they're going to chase after other gods, and God's going to take them away into exile. After Moses prophesies the coming judgment on Israel's coming sin, he says this about a future day. He says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. You see, if we are to have any hope at all, we need to be transformed from the inside out. We don't just need to adjust our behavior. We need a heart transplant. And God says, I will do it. In the words of Ezekiel, he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Now, it's interesting that Jeremiah mentions this promise first. I mean, why not the great promise, which comes immediately after, I will be your God and you will be my people? Why not the great promise of forgiveness to cover over all our transgressions and sins? Why start here? with the transformation of our hearts. I, I think the reason is this, the, the fault in the Old Covenant was that the people were not uh, content to continue in the New Covenant. And so God addresses this first. He says, I will write my law on your hearts. So there will come a day when you will always obey my law, when you will continue in my covenant, when you will do all the words that I say. Now, you immediately might wonder, okay, wait a minute, if I am a partaker of the new covenant by faith, why is it that I don't always obey God's law? This doesn't take long in the Christian life to realize we're not there yet. Well, the answer, of course, is that God isn't finished with us yet. And if Paul says in Philippians 1.5, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See, God has inaugurated his new covenant, but he's not done yet. We have not yet received the, the fullness of the promises. For that, we await the day of Christ's return. But because of Christ, we can be sure that the one who began his good work will complete it. God will complete his work. Now, the next great promise after growth is the promise of glory. 
Now, I include under this the, the remainder of verse 10, which says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then into verse 11, which says, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Now, what more glorious thing can there be than that God should be our God and we should know him? You know, really the promise, I will be their God and they will be my people is the great covenant promise. All the other promises are just further elaborations of what this means. To have the true God as our God, to have him be for us all that God is, our blessedness, our satisfaction, our joy and provider and protector and defender and forgiver and sanctifier. For us to be his people, the ones he watches over, the ones he cares for, the ones he cherishes, his treasured possession, his holy nation. What greater promise could there be? I mean, consider the opposite. To be without God, to be abandoned by him and alone, to have no blessedness, no life, no source of hope and certainty about things to come. The promise of the new covenant in Christ is that God will be our God and we will be his treasured people. And that we would know him. Uh, Not know him abstractly, right? Jeremiah does not simply mean that, that we will have an accurate doctrine of God, but that we would truly and intimately know him. The way a bride knows her husband on their wedding day, right? There is an intimacy to the knowledge of God. God is not an object of study like a, a flower or a great work of art or electrical engineering. And yet God is an object of study the way a lover studies the face of his beloved. Jeremiah says the promises of the new covenant, the promise of the new covenant is that we would all know him. Now, Jeremiah says that the result is that we would no longer teach each one his neighbor, which is kind of an interesting statement, especially as I read this text and teach it to you. Some have taken this to mean that we don't need teachers in the church. And yet the very existence of the book of Hebrews would prove otherwise, because if we don't need teachers, then we shouldn't need textbooks either. And yet the writer of Hebrews is teaching his people. So what does it mean then that that we will all know and that that we won't need teachers? What does that mean? Well, I, I think it means this, right? Let me say briefly, we all know presently in the new covenant in three ways. First, we know comparatively with the Old Testament. Uh, Paul says that that we now know the mystery of Christ, something that was not made known to the sons of men in other generations in Ephesians 3. See, the coming of Christ brings a fuller revelation of the Father, a fuller revelation of the Father's plan, a fuller revelation, and, and ultimately the fullness of the gift of the Spirit. And so we all know comparatively with the Old Testament. Second, we all know progressively. Right? As we attend the means of grace, God is at work fulfilling the promise of the new covenant. He does that in part through giving gifts of teachers to the church, as he describes in Romans 12 and 1 Peter, 14 and el- or 1 Peter 4 and elsewhere. God has not completed his work, but he is completing his work through the means of grace so that we would all know. 
Third, we all know eschatologically, right? Meaning on the last day, we will all know, even as we are fully known. Paul in Ephesians 4 says, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. We have not yet attained to the fullness of that knowledge, but we will attain to the the fullness of the knowledge of the Son of God. And so we all know comparatively, progressively, and eschatologically, which means we should continue to strive to know our God more and more. And Paul prayed this for his churches, right, again and again, that they would be filled with all knowledge and increase in the knowledge of God. And we should long for it to know our God through his word and through his son more and more day by day. So we have these first two blessings of the new covenant, the blessing of growth and the promise of glory, knowing our God. The final blessing of the new covenant is grace. It's the, the forgiveness of our sins. You see it in verse 12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. This is the the cause of all the rest, right? Uh, Apart from this blessing, there could be no other blessings. Apart from our forgiveness, our God is simply for us a consuming fire. Do you feel the weight of your sin? Are you burdened by, by unexplainable guilt? Do you live under a constant sense of shame? This is what you need, right? The forgiveness of all your sins by the blood of Jesus. Pursue it. Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hebrews here uses two different words for sin. And uh, oftentimes when the Bible talks about the forgiveness of our sins, it it loads up multiple words. and, and, And I think that's in part to show that whatever way we might have sinned, whether we have done wrong or failed to do right, whether in our inner thoughts or our outward actions, whether through socially acceptable sins or socially unacceptable sins, however we have sinned against our Father, He will be merciful toward our iniquities and remember our sins no more in Christ. This is the promise of the new covenant, that the reason this is sure is because of Jesus, who took upon Himself the curses of the old covenant to ensure that we would receive the blessings of the new. He was exiled from the Father's presence at the cross that we might know the Father's, the the blessing of the Father's presence forever and ever. Because of him, we can be made new and restored to our Father and forgiven of all our sins. Do you believe this? Are you resting in the work of Jesus, resting in the guarantee of growth and glory and grace found in the promises of God in the new covenant? Rest in your Father's promises. Rest in your Savior's work. Patiently wait for the Spirit's fulfillment of that work in your life. Pursue it even. And know that the fullness of it will come on the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, we thank you for the promises that you have given us in the new covenant. We thank you that they are sure and certain and guaranteed, not because of us, not because we can do it, not because we can keep it, but because of Christ. Father, we pray that we would look to Christ and that we would rest in Christ and that we would know that he has done everything necessary, that your promises would be fulfilled. 
Help us to rejoice in that and exalt in that even now, even as we look forward to the fullness of those promises in the age to come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.